Welcome to Scarier Players Respectfully, coming to you pre-recorded for PAX Online. Uh, during this panel, we'll be discussing techniques of terror as well as presenting methods to safely scare. I'm going to be one of your uh, hosts or panelists for this panel, Mike. Uh, Mike Andrick. I do a podcast called Darker Days Radio. been doing that for over 10 years. Very exciting. And we talk a lot about horror tabletop RPGs. And also joining me is Pete. How's it going, Pete? How you guys going? Um, I'm, hey, everybody. I'm Peter Mars. I am an Australian-based uh, gamer, gamer and uh, horror enthusiast. I've also been, well, I've not as much as the other guys, but I've been contributing for Darker Days for a very long time now. And I run a lot of convention games when and if, <laughs> when and if uh, real-life conventions uh, happen in and around Melbourne. Awesome. And also joining us is Crystal. Hello, I'm Crystal. I am a uh, uh, writer and educator, and I've been with Darker Days Radio for coming up on a year now. Yep. Yeah. So I'm excited to be here. And you also wrote some like blog posts about uh, uh, safety mechanics recently, so you're definitely uh, well-versed in all of this. I have, yep. Awesome. And also joining us is Chris. Hello. Uh, so yeah, I'm Chris Hanley. I am also a podcaster for Dark Days Radio and the spin-off show Dark Hammer, which is more about the Warhammer RPGs. Uh, so I'm a RPG writer uh, and uh, podcaster and also a scientific writer and scientific researcher and software engineer. Yep, absolutely. So let's go on first to a, a kind of a broad segment about just how to scare your players talking about techniques that we prefer and also uh, particular uh, mechanics that we might enjoy um, so i'll kind of just kick things off right here uh, when it comes to scaring my players in a tabletop horror rpg i really like to explore uh, moral quandaries so the the players might be horrified by bleak choices that um that NPCs make or terrified by decisions that they themselves need to make. Um, for example, I ran a, uh, a D and D game recently, um, where the uh, player characters were trying to save a little girl who had been manipulated into trying to summon, uh, the ghost for father. And, you know, it really disturbed them to start thinking about what they might do to try to bring back a loved one. Uh, that's really the kind of, uh, kind of horror that I enjoy. Uh, what do you guys, uh, uh, prefer with your kind of horror tabletop gaming stories and, and exploration pete do you have any ideas um well i mean a lot of i'm sort of very specific in how sort of i sort of come at this one i, I play a lot of world of darkness and I have played a lot of vampire um and ones for specifically that i found for vampire i think it would probably work quite well for werewolf as well is always kind of play on the idea of the hunter becoming the hunted um, now, there's a lot of sort of power fantasy involved in, I guess, uh, vampire. You know, you, you've got sort of, you know, set powers and you can sort of sit there and be like, you know, no, you're going to come with me. And, you know, mortals eyes glaze over and they'll come with you. Um, what I sort of like doing a lot is sort of giving my players a little bit of that. You go, you know, yep, you'll have a you'll have um, a mortal who bends to their will. They, they can or they can show off physically very well, you know, very much sort of, you know, reveling in the fact that, yep, I'm a vampire. I can potentially throw a car or any of that. The trick then is to turn that on them and to go, yes, you are a vampire. Yes, you are a hunter, but there is something scarier out there. Or the moment people sort of real or mortals who know exactly what you are, know how to 
exploit your flaws. So if you can then sort of flip that on them in the next scene, I found in my experience that that can really kind of amp up the feeling of horror and the feeling of terror. So it's, I mean, it's sort of like when, you know, if you've got, um, let's say if you've got a policeman who's giving you a hard time and you can be like, you know, you can easily dominate him. Yeah, sure. Great. The next scene you're dealing with someone from the second inquisition who knows exactly what you are and has a phosphorus shotgun. And you, or you can have, let's say you're, you're pushing around some neonate or some thin blood. Yeah, sure. The next scene, try that with the sheriff and see how well that works. I've, I've found that that that's, that's worked very well for me when I've, when I've been trying to amp, um, amp up and scare my players. Yeah, definitely. And you uh, at conventions really like to run Make Blood Boil, which is a, a scenario that uh, Chris wrote, which kind of, you know, leans into that, that exact uh, sort of, sort of uh, set up that same structure where it starts off that the players think that they're just hunting another vampire who's gone rogue or something, but it turns out they've, they eventually learn that uh, there's actually kind of like a multi-layered onion of people hunting each other uh, through that entire yeah. adventure. Yeah, that's, that's, that's one of the things that I, I really do love about that scenario where it, it, it sort of happens. The hunters become the hunter, depend, well, depending on how you run it and sort of the way I run it was it was a little bit stripped down because I've only, I've only got 90 minutes or, well, two hours, but the setup can take you a little bit of time. But, yeah, so you have the hunters become the hunted. If you if I played it right, I counted that happened four times over the course of one running of that game. Awesome, awesome. And, uh, Crystal, how do you like to scare your players? Um, I, I have done it accidentally before, where I... <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I, um... And I, I've used the, I'm not going to go into the whole story, but I've used mistakes before where I've, I've set up players to, to, to do something that is awful and then caught it later um, in, in context of the world, um, especially with D&D. That's actually really easy to do with the monster manual um, and mix-ups within the monster manual. <laughs> um, but one of my favorite things to run is I like to do um similar to like cloverfield suspense where you don't see, you only see parts of what's happening with the monster you don't actually see the full monster or anything like that um and it's really hard to put together the pieces until right up until the end hmm. um where that that reveal happens and then you're like oh oh that's terrifying <laughs> yeah yeah so definitely fear of the unknown uh, yes. definitely being a being a strong technique chris how about you um so i think moral con quandaries are always a good one uh i think this was a discussion i had recently on a different panel was you can't do jump scares in rpgs like traditional media for horror because you yeah. know you it, it doesn't have the same impact of oh and suddenly there's a monster there and if you did that it can feel a bit too much like oh, and then ninjas attack, kind of rather arbitrary monster just pops out of nowhere. That might work in the context of like a dungeon, if you're dungeon crawling and some horrific monster is around the next corner. Uh, Have but you ever I tried a literal jump scare? I was, I was, kind of, I was actually pondering yeah. this one, if you've literally just sort of kicked the table or something um, on there. So there is a literal bang halfway I through a session. And I'm not sure would, if that would work. It would depend on the players. Some people might get annoyed. Do that if you have a lot of control of the gaming environment that you live in, yeah. so the room, and you set the uh, the tone, the lighting, the sound, and everything else. And yeah. you really 
draw people in with that. So for me, horror is often more about what the players bring to the game rather than what uh, you can show. So it's very Hitchcock, you know, Hitchcock style where you don't see the knife go in in on the film, but everyone thinks they saw it. So you're better off suggesting because players will always have a far more horrific image in their mind of what's actually going on. So uh, let's discuss a, a little bit about storytelling techniques to uh, kind of add suspense and add terror to your games. And Chris was just bringing up um, not, how not to use uh, jump scares in his game. And I was actually kind of thinking uh, recently at PAX East, I did try to do a jump scare. I don't know if it was actually effective, um, but essentially I was running Call of Cthulhu, uh, a sort of uh, mythos mummy, if you will, was uh, leaving a, uh, a tomb, breaking out of it, and I just slammed down on the table multiple times, and it definitely got people's attention at the table. Uh, I don't know if it was really a, a good thing, but um, let's, let's discuss how to kind of build that suspense so that you can get those kind of uh, fearful releases in your game. So, Pete, how, how do you like to kind of add suspense to your games and kind of build that up, build up that tension? Well, I mean, this is, this is where I actually find that, um, and this is, this is difficult to do at a convention, but if you're, if, you're rolling, if you're doing it around sort of your own home, I've actually found that trying to control the environment is, I think, often your best friend. Because, mm-hmm. I, mean, I mean, ultimately, like I said, in particular, in the convention space, and in particular, um, the, the couple of PAX Australia's that I've done, we're in a space the size of an aircraft hangar. It's you and 30,000 of your closest friends are all there. The expo hall is banging away. So I, I kind of feel like if you want to try to get suspenseful and scare people, I kind of feel like it's, it's not going to happen in that environment. But what I've found, and I've had some friends you know, experiment with, with this a little bit, if you can control the environment completely, if you can kind of, you know, have control of the lights, have control of the sounds, if you can sort of get the house to yourself, get anybody who's not involved in the game sort of out of there. Um, if you can experiment a little bit with lighting and sound, like in, in particular in this sort of golden age of everything's being Bluetooth controlled and can be controlled by your phone or by whatever, you'd be really, really surprised what you can get away with, with let's just say, you know, a really basic sort of uh, Bluetooth-controlled LED lighting around, um, around the table. And also, I've had a friend experiment with this. Uh, and you can, you can do this through your phone. It's, it, there's apps for this. We actually had a barely audible heartbeat playing via speakers. And you can actually see if you sit there, if you sort of turn it down, or you can speed it up and slow it down. And you'd be really surprised how well that works. And sometimes they, people, you know, if you ask them about it, they're like, there was, there was a sound playing? I didn't remember. Mm-hmm. But you can actually see people sort of starting to get a little bit, you know, they lean forward a little bit. And then, you know, they, they can ease off a little bit more as you sort of turn, as you sort of turn the speed up and down on, on that. So I would really suggest people to, to experiment with controlling the environment. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And kind of to echo that, uh, Pete, a little bit, I think as a, as a storyteller, uh, you really do influence um, the uh, the suspense and the tension quite a bit. Um, I was watching uh, this anime called Neon Genesis Evangelion, a uh, pretty famous <laughs> one. But one thing, noticed, really? yeah, one thing I noticed about it <laughs> is that um, the there's there's building tension throughout the show. A lot of the early episodes are you know there's a lot of like laughing and goofy kind of anime stuff. Um, however, as you get towards the end people just laugh less and less and less. And um, there's, there's a real buildup to tension. And then there's one thing that happens. And then for the rest of the show, there is nothing fun about it. It is just just pure grittiness. Um, 
And as a storyteller, you can control that quite a bit because, you know, people laugh a lot when we're playing RPGs, especially horror RPGs. You know, it's a great way to kind of relieve tension. That's perfectly okay. You should definitely laugh and have a good time when you're playing a, playing a horror RPG. However, as a storyteller, you can control things by just not laughing. You know, if you start to get into really serious scenes where something very dramatic is about to occur, stop laughing. Even if your players are still kind of, you know, saying jokes, doing whatever. If you don't laugh, if you just kind of remain calm, stable, stern, they'll pick up on it and they'll realize that things are really getting serious at this point, uh, which is a great way to just build that suspense and tension. Uh, Chris, what do you think? Um, so building on what Pete said, uh, yeah, playing uh, convention games is very different. You obviously, because of the type of uh, environment you're in, uh, whether you're say, you know, I've run V5 demos for Modifius at, on at their like UK Games Expo booth, so you've got many people around you, uh, and you have people just coming up to try out the game, versus people that sign up for a game where you've made it quite explicit this is for ages 18 plus, but you're still in a communal room with many other groups playing games, and you don't know what those players are. So that means you have to modulate your tone. You can't be as loud as you may want to be, uh, and also what you say. Like you can't just uh, have profanities, which in the context of the game may well work with the players and who've agreed to certain things. The type of content uh, descriptions that you're going for may well work, but in a convention game, you know, you have to draw all that back in. Uh, but, you know, that means get creative with your, with your use of language. You know, you should have uh, perhaps for monsters, for creatures, for also the environments, the scenes. If you're not so good to begin with, you know, write a few, a list of five or ten uh, words, smells, sounds that sum up that environment to really help uh, set the picture, the, the tone and mood of that scene or that creature. Um, think about sound effects like that. Uh, try and play off the idea that, you know, uh, synthesizer. So sometimes it's hard to kind of get across a, a sound, but you can maybe get across mm. what it feels like, um, or or say a taste. You can maybe even kind of say it has a color if you really want to get weird. And that might well work in horror quite well when you're dealing with things that involve mental manipulation and uh, and and uh, a breakdown of how you sense reality. Uh, within your own home, within your own gaming space, uh, I use soundtracks. So I put together soundtracks uh, for all my games that play in the background. They're typically using music which has no vocals in there or vocals that are not generally the native language of it that everyone's playing in. So it doesn't intrude. Uh, that will be on random. Uh, it does mean sometimes you get tracks that don't fit and you just need to skip that track uh, a classic is i've got um a soundtrack for warhammer 40,000 for wrath and glory and there's a track which is perfect if they're like at a bar and it's the tortuga music from uh pirates of the caribbean but it's all too jolly and when that comes on part way for a fight scene no you skip that um so that's what i would do uh but also there's other things that help create the environment. Not all role-play games suit being sat around a table. And in fact, that's not always good for some players and you should be considerate of that. Uh, I don't hardly ever use a table for my games. Everyone sat on sofas and chairs uh, mm. in, a, in a space. 
with a TV with a slideshow going on it of images from, in this case, 40K. So it'll be images of the Warhammer 40,000 universe with my music pumping through the soundbar. But that all, and you know, not too bright lighting, but enough lighting so you can read your character sheet. Uh, that's essentially what I do to set the tone. Awesome, awesome. And Crystal, how do you uh, uh, kind of build suspense in your games? Um, I like to create a sense of urgency, whether it's artificial or um, purposeful. Um, and so as I'm getting closer and closer to the end or the, the, um, the big, you know, reveal point, um, as far as like controlling the banter around the table and stuff like that, I, I will make sure that I'm asking very pointed questions of my character or of the players of the characters, um, as far as what they're doing. Um, if there's NPCs involved, the NPCs are either continually getting agitated or um, trying to, to push along that sense of urgency to, to have more of a frantic feel. Um, and obviously this is stuff that I do um, very, very, very lightly with convention games. Um, and then um, I I do a lot more heavy with my my regular players, so um, but yeah I love to to create that because it does give a sense of suspense and like artificial dread of oh my gosh what's coming like she's asking a lot of questions what's going on <laughs> hmm. yeah that's interesting Crystal um, why do you go kind of easy on that. Um... Uh, increase in tension with convention games. I actually find that uh, building up urgency is a great way to just kind of get to the action fast. That uh, I usually, for convention games, I usually, um, when I run scenarios, I do keep them pared down um, so that uh, there isn't okay. so much of a buildup for it because I don't run super long convention games. Right. Um, and I don't know those players extremely well. So I want to make sure I'm very conscious because some people don't do well with that frantic feeling or that fight or flight response. Um, And I don't want to accidentally make someone extremely uncomfortable at my table. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's a good point. And that's definitely going to play into uh, some of our later discussion about uh, safety mechanics and the like. Um, add on that though with convention games is and it's really for any scenario and it's also useful for home games as well is you know you don't have as much time for setting up um getting the characters to make choices uh to get them to into that action so uh i typically start in media res so you know rather than oh how are you getting to this location where the stuff happens they're already there and the fight has already broken out or whatever madness is already ongoing and it's more about how do you begin to solve that situation not how did you get there how did you get there is often the last thing you need to think about especially at convention game Mm. Mm. yeah that's a good point um so real quick just kind of wrap up this section uh i think we wanted to talk very briefly about some of the kind of hot new mechanics that have been coming out um so I know, Pete, that uh, Alien has been a, uh, a really popular RPG lately for horror tabletop gaming. Can you talk about the stress dice a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the stress dice in Alien, um, they work a little bit similar to the hunger dice in uh, Vampire. Actually, um, they've actually found that they're, they're sort of a quite a parallel that I've seen a little bit. Haven't quite had a chance to run Alien, but I've had I've done enough V5 with this. Um, so because sort of as things progress in Alien, 
you keep ratcheting up stress dice. And initially, stress dice, because it's, all right, very quickly, Alien's a dice pool system, uh, uses D6s. Uh, if you get a six, that's a success. More successes, better things are. Um, your, um, with your stress total, the more stress you are, you actually get additional dice. So initially you're like rolling more dice, more chance for successes, yay. But ones on the stress dice are bad. More ones are worse. And, you know, with, you know, and, and the more that you sort of rack up stress, the more likely you are to find yourself in a situation where you, you freak out, you pull a Hudson or you pull a Gorman and you're just, you know, catatonic. Um, and I've just found that with Alien in particular, and this is also applies to, to B5, players are really conservative. You know, the, the whole idea of, oh, my God, it's, it's, it's ratcheting up, it's ratcheting up. And they'll sort of sit there and even players who've known me really, really well, they'll be like, if, if something bad happens, if I have a consequence from being really hungry or a consequence from being stressed, you're going to drop the bomb on me, aren't you? You know, something just terrible is going to happen. Yeah. So they will sort of be constantly working to, in, in the case of Vampire, I've, I've run Vampire now. Oh, I've done something like, I've run eight convention games and I haven't quite had a chance to get a to get an ongoing campaign going, thank you, COVID. But in all those experiences, I've never seen anyone go beyond three hunger. And even then they did everything in their power hmm. to try to drop it back down. Really? It was just like, yeah, I know. I, I don't know if it's just interesting. Who knows? Maybe that's the way Aussies game. I have no idea. <laughs> but you know, they're like, no, nah, can't, can't get too hungry. You know, I need to find someone to drink off. Or they just think I'm a terrible person or something. Or it's like, you know, no, he's going to force me into into. You know, I'm going to find myself in a situation. No, no, you know, you you rage out. Sorry, you um frenzy out. But in particular, with um with that stress die for Alien. I mean, like, so I'm sort of thinking how I'm, how I'm going to play that one. And I think people will want to be able to try to slow down the action and to try to bleed off some of that stress. And Alien gives you the provisions for doing that. You can stop and smoke a cigarette. You can stop and drink a beer. But I think, you know, there would have to be a consequence for that, you know, you know, because, you know, once, if you look at sort of the way Alien works, once the, you know, the way the films work, um, once, because Alien often has a slow burn, and then once things are burning and then things are moving very, very, very quickly. So if a player tells me, oh, you know, I need to slow down and, and take a moment <laughs> and, you know, finish my cigarette, I'll be like, yeah, okay, sure. I'm like, oh, yeah, I'll be like, yeah, okay, sure. But there, it would definitely need to be a consequence for that. So if, if they want to take things down a notch, I'll be like, yeah, sure, done. Um, you know that 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 uh, motion tracker flying at your hip? Yeah, it starts to ping. Hmm. Yeah. Nice. Nice. I like it. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a um, that's a good point about kind of how the uh, the tension builds up with the mechanics. Because even if you look back at probably the first popular horror RPG, Call of Cthulhu, um, that has the uh, kind of descending sanity track. Which you know, there's obviously a lot of a lot of issues with how sanity works and how how it can represent things. But from a purely purely mechanical sense, you know, you have that building dread as your character uh, loses those sanity points and it gets closer to becoming uh unplayable or um um or in some cases a much more interesting character and something i really like to bring up uh when i'm going to be running a horror game especially when i'm just kind of introducing the mechanics and everything is i bring up that losing should be fun that's kind of why mm, we're all here yeah. and it's just a better story if you can kind of go in there and be prepared to have some rough things happen to your character Crystal, are there any other mechanics that you would like to highlight from uh, recent or old horror games? 
Yeah. Um, one of my favorites is uh, Dread, hmm. which um, Dread uses a Jenga tower. And instead of rolling dice, as you do actions, you pull from the Jenga tower. And when the Jenga tower falls, your character dies. Um, so it okay. is um, artificially built in stress. <laughs> um, and there's a visual aspect to it because everyone, or almost everyone has played Jenga um, and can kind of understand how that feels when you're pulling something and you're like oh gosh will my character die just from you know trying to do this simple thing um and uh yeah i i love the the use of the jenga tower as a visual mechanic um i've even pulled it into my DD game um one time so yeah <laughs> and that um well we we were doing a, a long drawn out um chase scene and instead of continually rolling dice and it was through like an mc escher labyrinth-esque hmm. oh, yeah. thing so um uh as the, the jenga tower fell the characters fell off the maze okay and, uh, had to solve that problem <laughs> Gotcha. Nice, nice. Um, yeah, and uh, Chris, are there any mechanics that you might want to highlight real quick? Uh, okay, so um, most recently in Age of Sigma Soulbound, which is a uh, fantasy Warhammer uh, setting from Cubicle 7, um, they have Doom. Now, Doom mechanically doesn't do anything within the game. I mean, it could do in some respects, but, but what it is is a measure of of the progress of the tone of the setting. So as the doom increases, so as, as you get bad results on your dice and, and things, doom increases. And what doom does is it's informing the GM to to color the setting. So, uh, you know, things seem, shadows seem darker, uh, you know, cultists, you begin to see a gathering in corners of the city where you didn't see them before, they're more brazen. Uh, Perhaps the skies above in Akshai, that fire uh, that roils across in the clouds, begins to have the face of demons in it. Or maybe, um, maybe uh, in the realm of Shaiish, uh, you know, the the moon of um, the, the the ghostly version of the moon, Morsley from the world that was, hangs high, looming down, uh, painting its inky green glow. So that's that's kind of like informing the GM to push the tone of the game uh within within wrath and glory of course though uh we have uh, ruin which is essentially a pool of points similar to wrath wrath is a pool of points which players can use to re-roll dice and do stuff ruin is a again uh, a pool of points so that you can trigger abilities from antagonists and cause complications to be even worse mm -hmm. and as you see that pool rack up in size, the players are like, something bad's really going to happen because when we come up to the big bad, he's going to have a whole chunk of points to trigger, you know, a stream of corruption from the great unclean one or something else. Um, though, uh, I would say one of my really favorite ones is always uh, the deal with the devil in, um, in uh, Unhallowed Metropolis. You're about to die. You've run out of points to spend to uh, re-roll. You could always make a deal with the devil. And that basically is saying you get to do some re-rolls or you get to ignore death, but you are descending in corruption. And as that corruption increases, your character will gain 
uh, inter let's just call them internal or external mutation based upon the corruption of their soul. So again, it builds on the idea that as your soul is deformed and becomes more twisted and tortured, it manifests either in how you act or how you look, which is kind of similar to how corruption is in Warhammer fantasy. So, um, and I always like death spirals. Death spirals are, are fun. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, the Doom sounds really interesting because instead of attaching the kind of degradation of the uh, the horror element to a specific character, it attaches it to the setting. I think that's really yeah. interesting. I've not heard of another game doing that, although it might have been done in the past uh, at some point. So let's move on over to the, uh, the second kind of real meat of this, uh, this presentation, uh, which is how to scare your players respectfully. Um, because as you kind of noticed, we were, we were uh, talking about different mechanics and what we like to do in horror games. We're also kind of, you know, introducing that we should be a little careful. Um, you know, when you're about to play a, uh, a horror game, a horror RPG, you're all kind of tacitly agreeing to get spooked. But as you're doing this, you're playing with your friends and you don't want to get offended. You don't want to be hurt and you especially don't want them to be damaged from this experience. Um, so that's what we really want to talk about here. Um, I guess, uh, Chris, just kind of a, as a broad idea, how do you scare players respectfully? Right. Um, okay. So it's, it's a challenge because the, the point is you, the best kind of scares are where you tap into people's, uh, fears. And some of these fears are, I think, um, are, you know, broad across a population or or from where they are or a particular country. So you're not particularly calling out one person in particular with that. Uh, some fears are particular to a particular generation of people or people that have uh, children, maybe. Uh, that's why changing the loss, I think, is quite uh, scary gaming. So respect it's about losing your family, losing your child, that loss of, of innocence. But then you really do need to know your players because while you want to tell a compelling story, you may want it, especially if it's World of Darkness, you want it to be uh, feel tangibly real, like it's based in our world, but darker. Um, you want to know what players think are acceptable uh, horrors because while, you know, while war, while, uh, uh, while war, while um, kidnapping and other kind of violence, maybe very personal violence, sexual violence, is real things, they are not always acceptable at the table. So you really need to know your players. And that means you really need to have a good discussion beforehand, the, the setting, the, the session zero, uh, to find out what it is. Because it, it's interesting because for some players, actually they do want to explore these things because it allows them for some, some sort of catharsis maybe. So you shouldn't just by default say, we can't, you know, I'm not doing these because I think a player doesn't want to do that. You should talk to them because they actually may well, as a group, go, actually, we don't mind that. The other important thing is once you've established that is you should check in every so often and, and check because people might go, yes, that might turn into a no, a no might turn into a yes. Uh, and you should just be mindful of that. So while you do want to, as a GM, run the game you want to run, your players want to play a game that they want to play in, and that has to meet in the middle somewhere. And that middle is a bit messy and changes and evolves over time. 
Yeah, definitely, definitely. So I mean, that's that's kind of the uh, the number one thing is to know your players. However, as Crystal has been pointing out, there's situations where you might not know your players. So kind of on the flip side, Crystal, um, how do you in convention games or uh, things like that? How do you kind of tackle uh, this this issue? Um, so for me personally, I use the X card which I think we're going to talk about a little bit later. Mm. Um, but that the X card itself um, for will apply for any game. You can use it at any setting, um, at any table. Um, and it is a really easy concept for players to understand. Um, another thing is kind of having a little prep for sessions, like a session zero prep, um, mm. where you talk about some of maybe like the content warnings of the game or the scenario that you are running. There we go. So yeah, yeah providing those content warnings because then um, you can uh, get a feel for, you know, what the players are expecting. And um, like for instance, with Pugmire, um, you play dogs and cats in a D and D setting, and some people can't tolerate violence to animals. So you do have to, but they want to play the game because the, the, the setting is very, very easy to adapt for that. So, but knowing that ahead of time is very important because <laughs> it's a central part of the game. So making sure that if, if, you know, someone doesn't like violence to animals um, in, in that setting, you tailor what you are telling them to make sure that you accommodate for that. Interesting. So uh, let's let's kind of tackle that a little bit, Crystal. So if you were to have a uh, Pugmar game, or if you have had one where someone does not want to have any violence to animals, how do you tailor it? Um, is it with descriptions, or do you just change the entire kind of conceit? Um, so usually what I end up doing is uh, either I give the ability to describe what happens to the characters to the players and let them have mm. some narrative control over that. Um, or if there is some sort of violence, um, it doesn't end in death. It ends in being knocked out or running away um, to accommodate for that. Okay. Nice. I like it. And uh, Pete, how do you feel about the uh, the issue of knowing your players? Do you have any insight into this? Um, well, from a convention standpoint, what I'll, 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 little sort of chat that I'll, I'll, I'll have sort of the chat, um, massive fan of the X card. I pretty much won't do a convention game without it now. Um, and what I've found with that, um, is, I mean, look for, for a convention game, we're here for, a, we're here for a short time. I don't know. Or more often than not, I don't know anyone at the table. Um, so I'll just, I'll just flat out say, all right, this is going to, you know, this is a vampire game and it's going to involve us, you know, doing this, doing this, doing this. Um, now in, uh, the advice for considerate play chapter in V5, um, they talk a little bit about, you know, they use a couple of terms, which I'm not a huge fan of, like using sort of, what is it? Crosses and veils. Cause I think that's, a, it's maybe a little bit of flowery language. It's not quite straightforward as to what that's referring to. And also there's maybe a bit of crossing because I think those terms maybe originally were started by the BDSM community. So, you know, there may be sort of a thought there like, hang on, this is a sex game? But so what, I'll, what I've will what i sort of come up with as a replacement is what I just call the traffic light system where I just go, right, we are, you know, red, amber, green. And I say, right, so 
red boxes stuff is not happening in this game and i'm telling you right now it's not happening and if you try to happen if you if you, if you go there i'll i'll stop the game and say mate what are you doing and yeah. so for, for me personally i go right sexual violence or anything of that nature if you know it won't happen to your players and if you turn if you then turn to me in game and say well i do this i go uh-huh. no you don't out and then i say amber is our uh, amber are concepts that exist but we don't dwell on it you know and for me personally i always put sex there so if you say my character has sex i go yes yes you do it's something that exists but we don't dwell on and green is anything in between you know green is you know acts of violence acts of whatever general game stuff and I'll, I'll generally throw it to players and say right is there anything you want in the red bucket is there anything you want in the amber bucket please tell me now and i'll tailor the game on the fly to suit it yeah. i haven't really had anything you know it's, it's it's like if you if you can't tell a game that doesn't involve you know sexual violence violence against children you can't tell a game <laughs> you know you can't game you know it's that simple yeah yeah definitely uh but Pete, also kind of in a broader sense, you know, stepping away from the convention scene, even with your your long-term gaming friends, um, kind of as, as Chris was alluding to, um, I think we all agree that it's very good to have this kind of discussion uh, to, oh, abs- to make sure that everyone's on absolutely. the same page. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and this is something, this is something that happened to me very recently, um, and mm-hmm. I've sort of found, because I've, I've sort of had, I, I was having this discussion about the Session Zero and about, yeah, you know, you know we're going to talk about what we do and don't want to include... And I got a little bit of pushback. I was like, guys, we've yeah, known each yeah. other for 20 years. You know, well, obviously, you know, we, we, we know what people do and don't, don't like. And it was actually through that conversation, one of my players brought up, he said, oh, I, I really don't like sort of the concept of being tortured or being, you know, be, being locked up and being, you know, tortured either mentally or physically. I really don't like that. And I was sort of taken aback a little bit. And I was like, Mate, and this is a player who I've played with on and off, I guess, for 20 years, and I didn't know that. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, I just never brought it up. It's, you know, you don't have to explain where it comes from or anything, mm-hmm. mate. But, and so even then, if you, if you think you know your players, I would argue maybe you don't, and maybe even putting them in the situation where you go, right, tell me what you don't like, you, you may, you'll find yourself learning some things that you probably didn't, and you're like, oh, wow, geez so yeah it's never assume that you know your players and as even if they're people who you've known your whole life this this discussion is always worthy even if it's over in five minutes and you go yeah don't you know someone just goes it's fine play whatever but just you know don't kill any kids and you go yep easy done (laughs) yeah i was gonna build on the um the traffic light system uh because sometimes i think you know there's there's a thing like some people feel like like not where you don't want to try and intrude too much in gameplay. So I think also another option is what they used, um, that PDA uh, used at World of Darkness Berlin, and this comes from LARP, is the OK system. So either you're, you can you can quickly visually indicate, I'm cool with this, keep going hard with this, we're playing Warhammer, torture the hell out of me. Um, or, <laughs> uh, and that means I'm okay, but actually it means I'm not, and you should dial things back a bit. And then obviously, no, is like, no, this is not for me. Um, and then I think, Pete, what you were saying with what the was, lines and veils. Did, did, did no have a hand signal? I couldn't actually see. No, it. no, uh, yeah. sorry. Uh, it maybe oh. is actually kind uh, of like, it's actually a no, but, whereas a down is a uh, definitely yeah. not. And then with the lines and veils, that's what you're saying. It's not crosses of veils, yeah. lines and veils. I'm I sorry. think that's more about, um, this is a hard line. I don't want it in my game. Whereas a veil oh, okay. is more about 
you can suggest, but it's like it doesn't occur on screen. Mm -hmm. It's like a fade to black. Yeah, exactly. Oh, okay, sure. All right. So, like, fading to black is perfectly, I think, is, is, is fine. And I think many people, like, you know, you just go, you know what it is. And this goes back to the Hitchcock thing. We know you don't need to go spend 10, you know, five, 10 minutes in excruciating detail about how you're torturing this guy. It's torture. We get it. You know, yeah. we get this. So, you can have that game content in your game, but it's also kind of like you're saying, if people have agreed, we, we don't mind it being hinted at and suggested at we just don't want to spend time on it and that's that's something else yeah yeah definitely so um people have been alluding to a lot of different mechanics and mechanisms and the real big uh separation between the two is the uh kind of pre-game discussions uh which we we're just kind of getting into with uh knowing your players and as chris was alluding to the kind of uh, uh mechanics that you can use during your game so uh, i just really quick want to uh reiterate some of those pre-game um uh mechanisms or discussions that you can have um two that go uh hand in hand very well are the uh, pre-game surveys and also the the session zero. Um, so session zero is uh, just, you know, usually usually when you're making your characters, you're doing character creation, uh, you can have a discussion uh, with all the players and just kind of cover, um, as Pete was mentioning, you know, these are the things we don't want to cover. Uh, these are the uh, the elements that maybe we want to really explore. You know, these are the things that we uh, we you know, have been maybe uh, coming up in the news quite a bit lately that uh, we think that this game, maybe this like modern horror game would be a great uh, uh, kind of story elements to explore. And you can go along with that. Um, but something else I also want to highlight is some of these uh, pregame surveys that have been coming out. Um, so Pathfinder had a, a pregame uh, consent form uh, that came out, uh, I think like two years ago. Um, and that uses kind of the uh, uh, red light, yellow light, green light system, uh, so that right. you can uh, you can cover uh, uh, what people are okay with in a game, what they don't really want to explore. Uh, but in addition to that, uh, our friends over at Gehenna Gaming have their own horror game specific consent form, which I think uh, pretty much all of us have uh, have filled out. Um, and I found this to be uh, extremely useful. Um, during uh, convention games, uh, I've been using this with Gehenna Gaming, and um, it's a really good way. Uh, usually what I do is I give everyone the consent form, and then once they finish it, then, okay, you can pick your character at that point. Uh, and as they're picking out the characters, looking at those, I can review and see, all right, this is what we, we can cover. These are things that we can't cover. Are there any issues with the scenario I'm about to run? Which has come up, actually, uh, as a little anecdote. Um, another adventure that Chris wrote has the potential for people to uh, uh, kill a ghost dog at the very end. And I had several people say they don't want to see violence to animals. So I had to be like, uh-oh, uh-oh, what am I going to do here? And that's actually the angle that they're going for in the adventure. They're really focused on that black dog that they were encountering. Um, so what I had to do is essentially be very... When someone lunged at the dog, I had to basically almost fade to black. You know, I had to give a very limited description of what happened, but essentially it came out that, of course, they, they ended the uh, the dark ritual that was going on. This is the monstrous dog, isn't it, in in that vampire scenario? Yeah, I mean, yeah exactly. It's not, really, it's not really a dog anymore because it's like a vessel for uh, a specter or a wraith, isn't it? So it's not really... But yeah, I understand. Uh -huh. I mean, never, been, never kill the dog, Chris. Never kill the dog, no. <laughs> Sorry. <Yeah. laughs> Whoops. Um... <laughs> 
but yeah, those consent forms I find to be extremely useful. Um, I know Crystal and Chris, you've both filled those out uh, for a Gehenna Gaming sponsored thing that we've uh, we've been doing. Uh, how do you feel about them? Go, on, Crystal. I absolutely love them, um, and I uh, I highly recommend if you if you haven't filled one out, they do have it up on their website, so you can take a look at it. Mm. And it is very quick to to take a look at, and it helps you kind of build up the room in which you want to tell your story in. Yeah. So. And actually, the interesting thing with their consent form, which I've not seen on any others, is that they cover mind control, which yep. is uh, you know that that loss of player agency and also just manipulation really does bother people. And for some reason, seems to be a a core like supernatural power mechanic in so many horror RPGs. Um, so that's that's a really interesting point. Um, that's that's good to bring up and uh, something to watch out for uh, in your horror games as well. Yeah, definitely. And I think people, I know initially when uh, these surveys first came out, there was a lot of pushback, but it was like, oh, you're cramping my style of the game I want to run. Yeah. The point is, you know, you know, we're not the point is like if we look at vampire you know if it's a vampire game there are certain elements integral to it being a vampire the masquerade game or a mm-hmm. werewolf game or maybe 40k you know there will be war there will be blood drinking so there's an element of the players should expect like you know this game will be this will have this content and so that immediately either means i'm in or i'm out the rest of this is about tuning that dial to how people interact with the game and so it shouldn't you shouldn't feel like it's going to go oh i can't run vampire as it should be well vampire is many things there are there is a baseline uh, there is a you know you must be this tall to kind of play i mean that in the sense of it's going to have this amount of content to be this type of to be vampire but beyond that, there is a lot of degree of variability in what makes Vampire, what makes 40K, what makes Call of Cthulhu. And that is what these sheets are more about, is really tuning that. And, you know, that I don't see as a problem, because ultimately you want to run a game, people want to play a game. If you don't meet in the middle, you're not going to run a game. And yep. these things are collaborative. You are not a director who is uh, a tyrant to his actors telling them you're going to be put through these things. And that's happened in cinema. There are people in cinema renowned. Uh, Howard Ingham has written some wonderful essays on this as a particular actress. Her fear on screen is because the director was basically traumatizing her. This is renowned. Another one. Um, yeah. yeah. And we don't, you don't want to do that because you want to also build the community. You want these people to come back and play the game that you're playing. So your game you're playing has more products made for it and has a wonderful long life and you can find more players. You know, annoying yeah, them yeah. and terrifying them in, and traumatizing them. So they go, are all vampire players like this? Are all 40K players like this? Mm. They're not. They really aren't. Likewise, you as a GM are not are also a player. So if you've got a player being grotesque, uh, crass, and so forth, just because you're desperate for players does not mean you accept that. There are many people, uh, gamers, that feel like they can uh, be accepted. That what they do is accepted because, well, I'm a player like you, I'm a gamer, and you want a gamer. It's like, no, but I don't want you as a gamer if you're going to be like that, and I don't want my other players having to put up with you. So it goes both ways as well. 
Yeah, and it's it's also this whole thing where like like the people who are anti um you know anti X card and anti you know um anti safety tools basically will always kind of point out you know well, well what do you do when someone comes up to your table and they fill out one of these forms and and they've they've just said you can't have anything they've just gone through all of the topics and said no to everything and it's like I'm just like well in this hypothetical scenario which will never happen you would turn around to this person and say, I'm very sorry, I can't run a game like that. Maybe this version of Vampire that I'm running today isn't for you. Go enjoy the rest of your convention. There's no reason why you can't say that. And there's no reason why if you're setting up to to, to run a campaign and one of your players turns around and says to you, I want to run Vampire, but without any of the vampire, without any of the horrific elements in it, I want I want you to run Vampians for me, and I did know a guy who was like that. Um, you, I would turn around and say to them, "I said I don't want to run that game, man," and you'd then negotiate it. It's about negotiation. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, definitely. Um, so we're kind of uh, starting to run low on time here. I really wanted to cover some of the uh, in-game uh, mechanics that exist. Um, uh, several people have brought up the X card, and essentially what that is, is it is a card that you put at the table, uh, it has a giant X on it, and anyone can tap it or grab it, or basically say, during a scene, this is a no-go zone, and you can stop, you can uh, just basically pause, talk to everyone, and you can figure out what the issue was, figure out if you need to do a rewind, basically restart the scene, or if you can just kind of fade to black and then just keep the game moving from there. Um it's it's elegant it's easy um it really doesn't disturb the flow of the game uh usually uh it seems um although i've actually fun facts uh i have never had anyone use the x card on me and i've not used the x card on anyone but i almost did once i was i was like ready to lunge for it and uh luckily the uh the storyteller uh, we're playing like city of mist um and it was like in a game store in the basement and the storyteller uh kind of realized like you know there was an issue because i think several other players at the table were also like we don't we don't like where this is going and he he kind of elegantly just said like we're just going to move on from here um and that kind of prevented the issue um but it's it's a it's a very convenient mechanic and i find when i'm especially at convention games i'm explaining the rules of the game I find it's really convenient to just slip the X card mechanic in just as though it is a rule of that game. Um, in fact, it really just should be at this point for most horror games. Uh, it should just be a you know one paragraph little explanation. Um, I find that doing that and having people just accept it as one of the core mechanics of that game that you're playing, or at least the game that you're playing at the table at that time, uh, is a great way to just just have it there, have everyone accept it. And if you need it, cool. If you don't need it, awesome um so i think uh my question could be if anyone has any anecdotes of if you're comfortable with it of using the x card um or or anything like that um well i've i've run it i've i've used the x i've had the x card there i've never needed to tap it myself or had a player tap it Hmm. but i've had at least five different people come up to me after the games you know after the game and said Thank you so much for having the X card. I felt so much better knowing that it was there. I was mm-hmm. genuinely worried about, you know, some of the content and I've, I've you know, was, was worried certain things would happen to me while I was playing this game. 
which makes me worry, God, what's happened previously when you played this game? And I probably don't want to know how many answers that question has. Um, but yeah, <laughs> but no, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm very happy with the X card. It's no big deal. You explain it to people, as you said, you know, during your preamble, it just it sits there, you just have it, we move on. It's no big deal. And again, if you get people who are like, well, I don't want to play with an X card, you're like, yeah, cool. Yep. Leave. There's other people who want to play. Yeah. Simple yeah, as that. Definitely. Uh, Crystal, you've probably yeah. run the most convention games out of all of us. Um, have you had any uh, memorable experiences that you would be willing to share? You don't have to uh, with the X card. Um, I've actually not had anybody touch it. Like I've never had it actually used. Um, but like I said, I run very short because I'm t generally demoing at a booth. And mm, instead right. of like actual like running a game, like a scheduled game. So my my scenarios tend to be like an hour, maybe an hour and a half at the most. So yeah, like I've never had anybody, but I have had people who are like, oh no, I don't want to play with that. And I'm like, okay, you can leave. You you consent to leaving my game. Cool. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah, definitely. Um, and we also, yeah, just kind of as with the X part card, we kind of covered fade to black, but you as the uh, uh, storyteller can always just say, Let's just let's just kind of ease out of this scene and just move on to something else. You know, start a new scene uh, with different content. Um, that's definitely really easy to do. Um, the live action role playing community has also had some really big innovations. As Chris was mentioning, the uh, kind of pause and negotiate uh, and the check ins are huge, uh, especially for live action role play because. For a long time, it was really anathema uh, in that community to ever break immersion. You can't do that. You, you got to just keep going, keep going the entire time. Um, and like people could like take a break, step out, that sort of thing. Um, however, they really wanted to um, uh, uh, make sure that uh, uh, there was like a way for people in the middle of a scene to have a way to uh, kind of guide how it was going. And usually the way that that happens is you can just say, like, off game, in the context of a LARP, LARP, off game, how are you doing? Is this okay? Can we go this way? And you just have a little quick conversation, you know, it just needs to be a couple sentences. And if everyone's good to go, you can keep moving. Um, there's also nonverbal ways to do that. As Chris was alluding to, uh, you could do check-ins with, you know, thumbs up or the okay sign. Um, if people are not okay, then just say thumbs down and, you know, that person can just leave the scene walk out of the place uh and the like which is a really great way um in the middle of a kind of intense tabletop role-playing scene to just kind of check in with people you just give them a thumbs up make sure they're okay if they also give you a thumbs up you can just keep moving um although i feel like in the context of tabletop rpgs it's a lot easier to just kind of pause things uh and just have that discussion uh do any of you have any uh extra uh insights into these sort of you know uh check-ins in the middle of a game Ooh, not really uh i think the most important thing is just the other thing is you know if you're playing tabletop rpgs and you're running a regular session of your game and uh or if you're running a convention game that's going on for like about maybe three hours you know you're naturally going to need breaks in there and that's always a good point you know everyone's going to need to get get maybe uh go to the uh you know go to the the restroom the toilet whatever uh you know grab a drink and that's always a good point to check in and just you know you can just have a bit of banter about the previous scene just to, that's a great way of just reading the room but it's not within game it's a natural break in the game 
Uh, I mean, that's what I would generally do. Uh, and then, as Crystal said, I've run a few games with um, that are very short. And I think, um, you know, the at the end is checking in with the players. Because also, if you're running running them at a booth, the reason you're checking in is also to make sure, are they going to buy this game? Um, <laughs> I mean, that's yeah. self-serving, but you're also trying to, I mean, that's for me has been really important because I'm trying to reassess the demo I've run uh, and tune it uh, uh, even more, especially when you're trying to cram the best part of a three-hour demo into a one-hour demo space. Yeah. Um, <laughs> which Make Blood Boil has some great stuff in there that allows it to to get the, the main meat of it works for a demo game like that. Mm. Um, yeah, so I think that's all I've ever done. Um, plus, you can also, with a, with a break like that, is a good point where you could potentially retcon a scene if you feel that scene didn't mm. go as you wanted, or maybe, I mean, this is generally for gaming anyway, you forgot to tell them a piece of information that was really important yep. for the rest of the game. <laughs> You know, oh, and you should have learned this. You know, we have to retcon. We're not perfect. We don't have, uh, we can't do multiple takes on a game. Um, so by all means, retcon it. And I'm sure they do retcons and stuff on all these recorded stream games that you see because, you know, they want to deliver the best looking game possible for you. And they only have a certain amount of time both to film and cut and edit and do all the other stuff mm. they have to do. Mm. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Yeah. All right, so we only have about uh, three minutes left right here, so we got to wrap oh, this up real quick. But I think a major point that uh, we all want to make is that, you know, in the context of horror games, um, you might mess up, and that's a okay. That's all right. I was you're actually going, you are you're going to mess yeah. up. It's not. Yeah, might's not. It, it's it'll it'll happen at some juncture. You're human. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I was hoping to uh, include a story of mine from way back in the day that we could all sit down and analyze, but we don't have time for that. Um, but does uh, does anyone have any, um, I don't know, just insightful, inspiring points to uh, uh, kind of close us out on um, with regard to horror games, messing up um, and recovering, or just bringing well, things up? Well, look, look, I mean, as I said, look, I'm trying to get an air of horror and an air of tension in the game, you are working incredibly hard to essentially form a soap bubble. Um, you know, it's something, and, and it can, it's something very, very beautiful, but very fragile and can be broken like that. So just don't beat yourself up too much if it doesn't happen or if it doesn't quite happen the way it will. I mean, even, you know, you're, it's, if it's something that you're actively thinking about and actively working for, then I think that's enough. Awesome. Mm -hmm. Cool. Um, so I think just to uh, kind of wrap things up here, um, we can all just kind of, uh, you know, let people know where they can find us. Um, I have basically no social media, but I do this podcast, Darker Days Radio, uh, which you can find at darker-days.org. Uh, you can tweet us at Darker Days Radio. And we're doing right now a pretty sweet uh, Wrath and Glory game, Warhammer 40,000 setting, over on uh, Gehenna Gaming's Twitch channel, which Chris is the uh, storyteller for. Um, and you can definitely check out our content there if you want to uh, uh, see more um, or hear more uh, of this kind of discussion. We do a lot of storytelling advice, player advice, and the like. Um, Pete, where can people find you? Uh, they can find me on Twitter, where I am at Peter John Mars. They can find me on Instagram, where I'm posting all sorts of hilarious things, where I'm also at Peter John Mars. And in the real world, when we are no longer locked down, I am at most Melbourne-based gaming conventions, probably running Vampire and or Alien. Awesome. And Crystal, where can people find you or even check out your work? 
Um, so you can check out my work at thegeekypanda.com and uh, there are links to all my social media on there. Awesome. And Chris, how about you? Uh, so yeah, uh, obviously there is www.darkerdashdays.org, which is of course where we all podcast. Uh, we have at Darker Days Radio, where is our Instagram, which has lots of stuff to do with minis, which are mostly 40k related, and likewise. Uh, we have the Instagram, uh, not Instagram, Twitter, at Darker Days Radio, which I'm mostly more active on than my own personal one, which is at Chris underscore Ether, Chris with a K, not a CH. Um, and then if you go over to the Darker Days Radio blog, which is a WordPress blog, you will find both uh, content that doesn't fit this format, doesn't fit podcast formats, or be like painting guides, maybe reviews of certain games. Uh, uh, you'll find a list of all our episodes, and you will find also links from there to the Storyteller Vault content, which all of us, but Pete so far has written on, but we will get Pete on something I'm sure in future. Um, and that is all Chronicles of Darkness content that covers stuff like Secret Frequency Files, which is like folklore myths legends put into your game or their original scenarios for chronicles of darkness uh, and setting material setting like paris or venice awesome very good and to uh, all the viewers out there please enjoy your packs online and uh, we all hope that you learn some really great stuff today during this panel take it easy bye bye This has been an episode of Darker Days Radio. Special thanks to Occam's Laser for the intro, outro, and new bumper music from their hit album, Nine Circles. Check out the rest of their work at occamslaser.bandcamp.com. Occam's Laser.